Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. Just in case there's a rumor out that I didn't brush my teeth or something, you guys are all really far away for some reason. I'm like, hmm, it's good. I'm glad you're here. It is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I want to begin, before we do anything, point out in your bulletin, you have a half sheet of paper like this. It's there for you. It's great for taking notes, jotting down ideas, questions, things like that, helping you process today's teachings. Today we'll um, be able to put it to good use, I think. So I just want to make sure if you didn't see it there, it is there for you. Today we are in uh, week 10 of our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know about you, but I have been loving this series, um, what we are learning about Jesus Christ, this one life, this person that is key to our name, to our vision, um, and to uh, affect all that we do. Um, One of the things I've found us seeing over and over again with this series is that Luke sets up these crazy stories of the unthinkable that Jesus does, where Jesus comes in and totally changes the way the world both then and now thinks and does something totally different. And it's our hope as every time that we gather, as we look at these parables and we get a better understanding of Jesus that would help us to know how to live out our faith in the day-to-day, how to, to bring glory to God in all that we do and to invite others to do the same. So today I hope that this teaching will do the same. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Um, but before we get started... Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son of God, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. As the song said, as we breathe our very breath, help us to be aware of your presence with us. As we open up your word and look at it, God, we pray that you would reveal truths to us, that we would feel intimately connected to you and drawn into your presence, that we would know you better. And that our response would be uh, an invitation to join in whatever it is you're calling us to. So be with us, Holy Spirit, as we learn, as we hear, as we be in your presence. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you bought your, brought your Bible today, you can turn it to Luke 18, 9 through 14. If not, no worries. It'll be displayed on the wall behind me. Um, Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9, it says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, there's an audience, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Right off the bat, we read this text. I hope you get the sense of this kind of purposeful structure. There's two characters. There's two prayers. There's two kind of postures or positions. And there's two outcomes. And once again, we see these same two characters that have come up a couple times now. We have a Pharisee 
and we have a tax collector. And from the very beginning of this text all the way through to the end, we'll see this purposeful kind of structured compare and contrast. It's a literary structure, and it's what oftentimes is described as an example parable. And in the first century, in Jewish culture, these two people groups were diametrically opposites. They were the complete opposite that you could be, especially on the social spectrum. So if you have your notes and your paper, your bulletin, if you wanted to, you might want to just take it out, draw a line down the middle, and on one side write Pharisee, and run one side write tax collector. And we're going to kind of just look real briefly at how this text is written out. But it basically sets it up. There's these two people. Pharisee is one who relies on himself because of their righteousness. And we have a tax collector who's regarded with contempt. The scripture says we have one Pharisee, the other one's a tax collector. One, the Pharisee's standing by himself, while the other one, the tax collector, is standing very far away. One gives thanks to God for their state of righteousness. The other one addresses God in humility as a sinner with a request for mercy. The Pharisee returns without justification, while the tax collector returns justified. And then we get this conclusive ending. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. All who humble themselves will be exalted. So you can see this literary structure that's built into the text. And it's within this structure that we are led to try to put ourselves into the story, to identify ourselves with someone in the text, right? It feels kind of natural, right? One's supposed to be the good example. One is supposed to be the bad example. And that's where we have to beware. Okay. Thank you, Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. You are not supposed to do this. And as I've said before, as we've seen, we've seen these tax collectors, we've seen these Pharisees come up a lot, even in our series. And it's important for us to make sure we do like a quick survey and a little background on here. So before we do anything, I want a show of hands. How many of you, generally speaking, when you hear the term Pharisee, think of a legalistic hypocrite who is conceited and always kind of looking down on society? We hear Pharisee. Okay, awesome. How many of you, when you hear the word Pharisee, think of a respected leader in the community? Brilliant. Pharisees in the first century Jewish culture were the most respected people there were. They had the absolute highest esteem of the people. Everyone looked up to them. They were the ones that did it right. They were the religious specialists. They were honoring God the most. We, in our current day, have these stereotypes of this group of people from reading the biblical text, because we've seen it even in our series, of the, the Pharisees being these pompous jerks, right? We automatically hear Pharisee, and we hear a negative thing. Rule sticklers, stuck up, treat people poorly. And don't get me wrong, there were some of those. But generally speaking, the majority were very sincere people who are just hyper-religious. They just like to do all the right things according to the law. And as a result of them doing it, they were confident of their own righteousness. Do you have things that you love, that you care about, that you're passionate about, that you know so much about, that you have some level of confidence in that 
particular understanding and it affects the way you move. It could be anything. For, for the Pharisees, of the 613 laws of the Old Testament, these people kept every one of them. And they even added a couple for good measure just to be safe. That's what they were passionate about. And as a result, everybody loved the Pharisees. They were the most respected people of the day. And more so, the prayer that's prayed by this Pharisee, generally speaking, is exactly the type of prayer a Pharisee would have prayed during that time, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, in contrast, we have this tax collector. And during the first century Jewish culture, these guys were the scum of the earth. Why? The Roman government was oppressing Jewish people. The Jews hated the Roman government. The Jews hated those, anyone who was sympathetic towards the Roman government. The Jews even more so hated anyone who worked for the Roman government. And tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. And those people had the job of collecting all of the taxes from the Jews that the Jews were intending to give as tithes towards God. So instead of going to give their money to God, it was going towards taxes, and it wasn't going to God, it was being given to Caesar. And if it couldn't get worse, the tax collectors were generally paid very poorly by the Roman government, so what they would do is they would add on more taxes that people had to pay so they could get paid better, which oftentimes they were like extortionists and made themselves quite wealthy. So you can imagine these exact opposites of the social sphere. And this is where the trap comes into play. We have two people, one of which in first century Jewish culture would have been seen as the spiritual and moral hero of the day, and another that would have been seen as the scum of the earth. I was trying to come up with a modern day equivalent of what this might be, and I thought of the Pope and the pimp enter into St. Peter's Cathedral to pray. In our picture, that might most kind of represent how the people of the time would have heard this story, especially in relationship to the temple. So if I had started a sermon off, a pope and the pimp went to St. Peter's to pray, what would we expect? Would we, in our wildest imaginations, take that the pimp would be the one who left justified? At the same time, we wouldn't want to give the impression that the Pope's prayers are not heard by God, let alone that he would leave unjustified. The trap here is that we root for the Pharisee or the Pope, but that's the trap because we see God does the unthinkable again. It's the scum of the earth that's justified, justified not the hero of the day. Now, we, on the other hand, we tend to read it automatically in the opposite because we're very knowledgeable of Scripture and we get it. So knowing the Pharisees are regularly cast in the Gospels as Jesus' opposition, we very easily automatically judge a Pharisee and say how self-righteous and hypocritical they are, that we assume that they think they're all that. And so the moral of the story is simply just to be humble. And I want to say, don't get me wrong, that's a straightforward interpretation. As Luke seems to kind of frame the parable 
to do. But again, if you were to do this... It's a trap. It's a trap. Admiral Akbar, thank you. That is not what we're supposed to do here. And here's why. Because if we were to do that, we would kind of end with an interpretive kind of response prayer that might sound like this. Lord, we thank you that we're not like other people, hypocrites, overly pious, self-righteous, or even like that Pharisee. Because we come to church every week and we listen attentively to scripture and we've learned that we should all be humble. Right? Can you see the problems with this? It's a trap. And so in order to avoid this kind of self-congratulatory reading of this parable that the parable itself kind of seems to condemn, it might help us to note, as I alluded to earlier, that in fact everything the Pharisee says is true. The Pharisee has set himself apart from others by his faithful adherence to the law. He is, by the standards, both by Luke and Jesus, seem to employ, he, by all means, is righteous. So we actually have records of ancient prayers similar to the Pharisees, and such prayers were not considered self-righteous, boasting. For example, this is a following, uh, this is a prayer of thanksgiving that was found in the Talmud that rabbis would pray as they entered or left the house of study. Here's an example. It says this. I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the Bethlehem of Radash, which is the house of study. And thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in the street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early, but I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor, and they labor, but I labor and receive a reward, and they, receive a, they do not receive a, a reward. I run, and they run, but I run to the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction. That was a common prayer. A similar prayer that's quoted in the book, Jesus of the Parables. This one might be even a little more offensive. These are are three praises that they were encouraged to give every single day. Praise be to the Lord that he did not make me a heathen, for all the heathen are nothing before him. Praise be he did not make me a woman, for woman is not under obligation to fulfill the law. And praise be he that he did not make me an uneducated man, for the uneducated man is not cautious to avoid sins. Common prayers of the Pharisees of the day, not seen as self-righteous. So it would seem, as we look at the text, that the Pharisee's prayer, thanking God that he is not like the rest of humanity, was not at all unusual. He's a model of the pious man, both by one, what he did do, which the text said he was fasting and tithing, which, by the way, were far beyond what was required by the law. And he was also a model by what he didn't do, act like a swindler, evil people, adulterers, or act, by, by all means, like a tax collector. So we need to be careful not to judge him too quickly, because we might reframe or modernize this prayer slightly and wonder if we've uttered something like it ourselves. Maybe we haven't literally prayed, 
God, I thank you that I'm not like such and such other people, but we might have done something similar. Have you ever found yourself thankful for your situation, your circumstance, your life, your finances, your education, your friendships, your marriage, you name it, based off of comparison of someone else or something else? For example, thank God I've never had that disease or illness like those people. Thank God I don't have to work here like these people. You might not tag the little last three lines. Thank God I don't live in that neighborhood. Thank God I don't have that salary. Thank God I don't have to go to that school. Thank God I don't have hair like everybody else. That's my, maybe one of mine. Uh, you get the point, right? It's easy to make comparisons and compare ourselves to everyone else and everything else because that is our natural self. We're always looking at others and making comparisons, and we can find lots of things we're thankful we don't have to deal with. It isn't that the Pharisee is speaking falsely, but rather the Pharisee misses the true nature of his blessings. As Luke states in the introductory sentence of the text, he is trusted in himself. His prayer of gratitude may be spoken to the Lord, but it's really about himself. He locates his righteousness, his blessing, his situation, his circumstances, and his status entirely on his own actions and being. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself giving yourself credit for something you have or did rather than God? I don't know about you. Have you ever done that? Giving yourself credit for something instead of giving the credit to God. The tax collector, on the other hand, knows that he possesses no means by which to claim righteousness. He's done nothing to merit. Indeed, he has done everything to offend the law of Israel. And for that reason, he's barely able to enter in the temple. He stands back and throws himself on the mercy of the Lord. And this is where the essential contrast comes in. One person makes a claim to righteousness based on his own accomplishments, while the other relies entirely on the Lord's benevolence. And rather than be grateful for his blessings, the Pharisee kind of appears smug to the point of despising others. In the Pharisee's mind, there's two kinds of people. There's the righteous, and then there's the immoral. And he is grateful that he has placed himself among the righteous. The tax collector, on the other hand, isn't so much humble as he is desperate, especially in comparison to the Pharisee. Have you ever been in a situation where you're comparing yourself to others, and rather than think more highly of yourself, you actually think less of yourself. You see others, what they have, what they do, how they live, what they're paid, you name it, and you desperately want what they have. The tax collector is too overwhelmed by his dilemma to take time 
that divide humanity into sides. All he recognizes as he stands near the temple is his own great need. And he stakes his hopes and claims not on anything he's done or deserved, but entirely on the mercy of God. And and, and as a side note, I don't think there's any accident that this story is happening in the temple. Because on the grounds of the temple, you were always intimately aware of who you were, of what status you had, and what you could expect from God. Because at the temple, there was always the insiders and the outsiders. And according to the rules, there was no question of where the Pharisee stands and where the tax collector stands. But the good news is that when Jesus dies on the cross, all of this changes. As the Gospels report in Luke 23, 45, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, symbolically erasing all divisions of humanity before God. And that act is literally prefigured here in this story, as God justifies not the one favored by the temple law, but rather the one standing outside the temple gate and aware of his utter need. And that's what makes this parable so hard to preach, because it's a trap. For as soon as we fall into temptation to divide humanity into any kinds of groups, we've aligned ourselves squarely with the Pharisees. Whether our division is between righteous and sinners, as the Pharisees want to see it, or between self-righteous and humble, which Luke kind of sets us up, we're doomed. Anytime you draw a line between the ins and out, the parable asserts you're going to find God somewhere on the other side doing the unthinkable. So when we read the text this way, the parable ultimately escapes even its own narrative setting and reveals that it is not about self-righteousness, it's not about humility, any more than it's about a pious Pharisee or a desperate tax collector. Rather, this parable is all about God. God who can alone judge the human heart. God who determines to justify what the world says is ungodly. God who desires to reconcile all things and make all things new. And at the end of the story, the Pharisee will leave the temple and return to his home righteous according to the law. And this hasn't changed. He was righteous when he came up, and he's righteous when he goes back down according to the law. And he's not looking or praying for anything to be different. Instead, he gets exactly what he wants. The tax collector, however, leaves the temple to go back home, and he is justified. That is, he's accounted as righteous by the Holy One of Israel. Now, how did that happen? How did the scum of the earth get to be accounted as righteous before God? If we look at the text, the tax collector makes absolutely no sacrifice, no restitution. He doesn't say he's sorry for anything. He doesn't come clean on what he's done. He doesn't say, I was wrong, you were right. So on what basis is he named righteous? 
the only way he is named righteous is based on God's divine approval and ordinance, period. Another way of saying this is the only way he is made righteous before God is by God's grace alone. Ultimately, what this parable is doing is not so much an example of be like this guy, not like this guy, because that is a trap Admiral Akbar has told us a couple of times. But rather, it is showing us that we are all Pharisees who get caught up, who get lost, if you will, in our own self-righteousness, our accomplishments, our abilities. We lose sight of God and our absolute need for him. But not only that, we're also tax collectors who have done things that we know are not good, who have invested our lives into ways of thinking and treating others that are sinful in the light of a holy God and have absolutely nothing to give before God to receive anything. We are desperately in need for him. In other words, this parable is about our absolute need for God and his grace. Now, at the beginning, I wanted you to kind of ponder, do you identify yourself with Pharisee or tax collector? And I hope now you get some sense that we're both. There's something of us in both. In other words, this message is for everyone. And I hope that you hear the message is clear. The only thing that reconciles anyone to God, that can cause one to be justified before God, is us coming to a place in our every moment of our day-to-day and seeing and knowing our absolute need for God and his unthinkable, unimaginable mercy and grace. So the, re- the reality is, we all, right here, right now, are alive solely because of God's grace. The breath you're literally breathing right now, you are breathing because of God's grace. Your life has purpose solely because of the grace of God, and you did nothing to earn any of that. And when we find ourselves yet again with nothing to claim but our dependence on God's mercy, when that happens, and we forget for a moment our own kind of human constructed divisions and stand before God aware only of our need, It's in those places that we're reminded of how we are justified before God and invited to return to our homes in his mercy and his grace and gratitude. Amen. I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward. And as they do, I'm going to have us do something we've never done before. Um, If you would stand, I want us to do a little prayer practice. And this prayer practice is an ancient prayer that is tied to the text and is also tied to our breathing. And it's called the Jesus Prayer. And you're going to see up behind me this prayer. It's got kind of four phrases. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can see it's very clearly tied to our text. But what's really cool is that we're supposed to give this prayer along with our breathing. So as we breathe in, we breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, as we breathe out, Son of God. As we breathe in, have mercy on me, as we breathe out, a sinner. It's intended to be prayed as we breathe in and out.
And so what I want us to do as we close is just take a moment in silence. And I'm asking you all to try this. I know for some of you this could be totally new. Um, Just pray this prayer to yourself silently as you breathe in and out. And we're just going to do this for a few moments. And while we're doing this is just simply recognizing our need for God in something as critical as our very breath. But also personally in our prayers acknowledging our need for God. So we're going to take just a moment in silence to do this. Uh, I'll close us in prayer and then our worship team will lead us in a song as we go. So quietly before God, let's pray. Spirit, as we breathe in and breathe out, we are reminded of our utter need for you. As you fill our lungs and give us life, we've done nothing to deserve it. You are good to us, and we need you. But God, as we breathe, we also acknowledge our need for you in our prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God. We call upon your mercy on all of us sinners. We recognize as we breathe, we have nothing that we've done that earns anything in your sight. And we just need you. We long for you. We want to be reconciled to you. We want to be justified before you. And we thank you for a story like this that illustrates your grace and mercy and how unimaginable amazing it is that you have done all the work on our behalf. We thank you, Jesus, for the work on the cross taking down the curtain that divides and allowing us to be in your presence. So God, as we end, as we leave, we continue to breathe and we continue to give thanks, and we continue to acknowledge our need for you, and we even now worship you and give you praise, for you alone are worthy. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.